Hey, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to John chapter 5, John the fifth chapter, and let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts and our minds. God, we walk into this place from so many different spaces in our own life, and we need to encounter you afresh this morning. So we ask, God, that we might meet you in your word and that in meeting you, we might be changed. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we've been in a series over the last few weeks entitled Encounters. And it was the uh, Argentinian evangelist Luis Pulau who once said, one encounter with Jesus is enough to change us instantly and forever. And so we've been walking through the Gospel of John, and we've been looking together at people who encountered Jesus and whose lives were changed by that encounter. And our hope, of course, is that we might, in these stories, encounter encounter Jesus afresh ourselves and our own life so that in encountering Jesus, our own lives might be changed. And today, I want to begin like this, though. Uh, So have you ever hurt or offended somebody, maybe it was because intentionally or unintentionally you asked the wrong question. Have you ever hurt somebody because you asked the wrong question? So several years ago now, my wife and I were going for a walk out on the Seal Beach Pier, and while we were on our walk, we ran into some friends of ours that we had known years ago, uh, some actually students that grew up in my youth group, and they had since graduated, they got married, and now they had a baby. And so they were out walking on the Seal Beach Pier and pushing this baby. And I looked down at the baby, and I was like, oh, she's so beautiful, she's so cute. And then I looked up at him, and then I looked at her, and I'm like, oh, are you pregnant? And she went ashen white. And I just thought that was the wrong question. And, um, and she was, and I tried to backpedal, you know, like, I mean, are you going to get pregnant at some point in the future? I didn't, you thought I meant now. No, I didn't mean now. No. I mean, at some point, of course, you're going to have children. You're not now though, of course. It was too late. But have you ever got yourself in, in trouble because you asked the wrong question? You know, the Bible actually is a collection of ancient sacred writings that is full of questions. And some of the questions, of course, are uh, questions that arise from humans and they're addressed to God. And sometimes maybe those questions might feel offensive or hurtful to us because they seem strong, like, God, where are you? And how long? And when are you going to do something? And what's wrong? And why is it that they're prospering and they're wicked and I'm suffering and I seem to be doing things right? What's going on, God? You know, sometimes the questions in the Bible are questions from humans addressed to God. But I think what's interesting is that the Bible also has a number of questions that come from God and that are addressed to us. You know, in the opening pages, uh, God asks that first couple, where are you? And then he says to the woman, what is this you have done? And then he asks Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? And then God asks Sarah, why are you laughing? You know, throughout the scriptures, God is putting questions to us humans. And of course, God asks questions not because God is trying to learn something about us. 
You know, God knows everything there is to know. He doesn't ask questions in order that he might learn something about us. God typically asks a question so that in the asking, we might learn something about ourselves. You know, it was Socrates who said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And sometimes God puts questions to us to help us engage in some healthy, fresh self-examination. And in the story that we're looking at today, Jesus puts a question to a man. And in this question, it's not there because Jesus is trying to learn some information. I think Jesus asks this question because he wants this man and he wants us maybe to start asking some questions afresh about our own lives and our own existence. And so what I want to do today is I want to invite you just to enter into this narrative, and then at the end, we're going to stand back and we're going to kind of uh, explore this question that Jesus asked. So the story picks up in John chapter 5, verse 1, and it says this. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So it's interesting, you know, throughout the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the, the Gospels are framed in primarily three spaces. Uh, the first half typically is consumed with Jesus doing ministry around Galilee. And then in the middle, Jesus is on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then in the final chapters, Jesus spends his time in Jerusalem. What's different about John is John actually traces a number of different journeys that Jesus takes from Galilee down to Jerusalem and then back up to Galilee and then down back to, down to Jerusalem. And usually what takes Jesus down to Jerusalem is that Jesus goes, like many people, on a pilgrimage. Like many, you know, uh, Jews in the first century, he would go on a pilgrimage to celebrate the great feasts in Israel in Jerusalem, the holy city. And so the text says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's interesting, it does say Jesus went up to Jerusalem, even though uh, Jesus technically was going down from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem, but he went up because Jerusalem is at 2,500 feet, and so when you go to Jerusalem, you go up to a mountain, as it were. And so Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes there for this feast, and then it says, look what happens next. It says, now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five Ruth colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, John says he goes to Bethsaida. And uh, this word Bethsaida is interesting. It's a compound phrase uh, taken from two Hebrew words, bet and hesed. Bet is house of, and hesed means loving kindness. And so Jesus goes, it says here, to the house of loving kindness. But when he gets there, we discover that this is anything but a house of mercy and grace and loving kindness because there it seems like it's much more a house of suffering and misery. Because look again what the text says. It says, in this place there lay a multitude of invalids, blind and lame and paralyzed. And so Jesus goes to this space that is really a house of misery and suffering 
because uh, this pool that he visits is surrounded by dozens and dozens of sick and invalid and the blind and the lame. And, and this is an area that healthy people just didn't go. You know, this is a, it's a space where healthy people, when they went to Jerusalem, they would avoid this place like the plague because it almost certainly smelled and looked like the plague. And let's note that when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, that this is where Jesus goes. He doesn't visit the palace. He doesn't go to places of interest. He doesn't even go to the temple, not first. Instead, Jesus goes to the place of greatest need where all of the most desperate people are because this is where Jesus always goes. This, this, this is where Jesus belongs, right there in the middle of a camp of human desperation. And it says that here he, he meets this group of people and they're all lying around this pool. And why are they lying around a pool? Well, there was a folk belief among the people that this pool contained some magical healing powers. And that if you could get in the pool, you might get some healing. And it's interesting, you know, this pool has actually been excavated and you can visit it in Jerusalem today. And he describes it kind of in detail. He, he says it's uh, the pool in Bethsaida. It's near the Sheep Gate. And it has these five porticos, and, um, uh, which actually the five porticos was something of a puzzling feature suggesting an unusual five-sided pool, which most scholars for, for generations dismissed as an unhistorical literary creation. They dismissed it until uh, these excavations were found, and they found, lo and behold, a rectangular pool with two basins separated by a wall, thus a five-sided pool, and each side had a portico, and there was a reservoir of water that fed this pool, and they discovered that at the bottom of this pool, there was this natural spring that fed into the pool, and so sometimes, uh, inexplicably, to the ancient peoples, it would bubble up. And so there was this theory that when this water bubbled up, you know, there's a superstition that it implied that there was an angel that was stirring the waters, you know. And in fact, if you, if you look down in your Bibles, uh, there should be a little footnote. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but you have uh, John, it goes 5, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. And then in my Bible, it goes to verse 5. Do your Bibles do that? Verse 4 is missing, and that's because uh, this, this uh, in some manuscripts that are later than the earliest manuscripts, there's this phrase. Uh, it might sit this down in the, the footnote in your Bible. The people were waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the waters was healed of whatever disease he had. And uh, some scribe later who was copying this manuscript, no doubt, put this in there to kind of give an explanation of the superstition, kind of the folk belief that was informing why all of these sick and lame people were laying around this pool in Jerusalem. Now, I, I think that we modern people, you know, we might think, you know, come on, really, there's a pool there, and if you just get close enough to it, you get in that pool, the first one in gets healed. That doesn't even make sense. But, you know, you got to understand that these, 
These people in the ancient world, in many cases, they lived in desperate straits. You know, in, in America in the 21st century, even the most poor among us can sometimes, they can have access to ER, you know, and I don't know about you, have you been in a situation, and I, I've, I have four kids, and I've been in a situation with my kids where I've been terrified in the middle of the night. I remember uh, one of my daughters had Kawasaki syndrome at one point, and it was freaking us out, and we took her into ER, and, and when you're in moments of desperation, you just need something. And of course, even in our day, when people run out of options and it seems like the medical world is of no help to them, they'll turn to crystals and uh, healing stones and essential oils and all sorts of things, you know, fad diets, because you just, you, you want something that's going to help you. And of course, in the ancient world, the only people that had access to medical professionals were the rich. You know, doctors were scarce, and quite frankly, doctors were kind of scary too, you know, because they didn't have the same training they have today, and so they would engage in all kinds of things that might not help you. And so it's no wonder that they, you know, as they laid by this pool, they had this kind of uh, uh, special superstitious belief about this angel that would come, but it simply reflected the fact that they were desperate, and so they would go to the temples and they would go to the gods to try to do something when they were in these desperate straits. And you could just imagine, I mean, when they saw this water disturbed for no apparent reason, they assumed like, oh, it must be an angel. And the first one in the pool uh, gets healed. And think about the chaos that would ensue if that's what you believed. Dozens of these sick and desperate people fighting, clawing their way to get into this pool. And look what happens next. Well, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, stop there. So here, Jesus goes to this place of desperation and he looks around and there he sees this guy who's been laying by this pool for 38 years. And there, there's a lot of hurting people around. But of all the hurting people, notice in the text, Jesus sets his gaze. He, he fixes his eyes on this one man. And we wonder, why him? Why not someone else? Why this man? Well, perhaps Jesus fixed his eye on him because this guy, maybe he had been sick longer than anyone else. He had been sick maybe lying there for decades, 38 years. That's a long time to be suffering. But, but maybe, maybe there was another reason. Maybe, maybe Jesus set his gaze on this guy because this guy's circumstance was not only very, it was not only of a long duration, but this guy's situation maybe was a little bit complicated. You know, as you read on in the story, a little bit later, Je Jesus does something that he almost never does when he heals somebody. And what does he do a little bit later on in the story that he almost never does when Jesus heals somebody? Well, what Jesus does is he connects this man's suffering to his sin. A little bit later, he's going to say, sin no more that something else worse doesn't happen to you. Now, Jesus doesn't, he's not saying that there is some inextricable link between your suffering and your sin. 
Of course, Jesus was the most righteous person that ever lived, and he suffered. And there's a whole lot of people that are very unrighteous and never suffer. But in, in our text, Jesus connects this guy's physical condition, his physical malady to some spiritual malady of his soul. He wasn't just crippled in his body, he was crippled by his own sin. And maybe it's for that reason, maybe among all of the different people there, maybe it was this guy who had been sick the longest and his condition was particularly acute and complicated because he had brought this upon himself. Maybe of all of the people there, maybe he was the most unworthy person who would receive healing on that day. But where is he after all? He is in the house of mercy, right? This is the house of grace, And grace doesn't look upon who deserves the healing. Grace looks upon human need, and like a magnet to human need, God in Christ is moved toward this man's need. And so Jesus leans down, and he sees this guy. He's been sick for 38 years, and he's crippled, and he's just lying there pathetically suffering in his misery. And Jesus leans down, and he asks the most unusual, maybe even offensive question. He leans down, and he looks at this guy, and he says, do you want to be made well? What kind of question is that? I've been sick for 38 years. What do you mean do I want to be made well? Of course I want to be made well. You know, what do you mean do you want to be made well? I don't, I don't even get your question. You know, who, who doesn't want to be made well? You know, we're going to get back to this man's question at the end and kind of explore it a little bit more. But I do just want to note in passing that Jesus asked this very unusual question. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Maybe he's asking this because sometimes it's harder to get well than to stay sick. Sometimes life gets more complicated as it will for this guy in a few minutes when he gets well and life starts getting challenging because of the religious leaders around him. Sometimes it's easier to stay paralyzed in bed than to get well. You know, uh, I got COVID just before Christmas Eve. And so on Christmas Eve, I spent all Christmas Eve in bed. And I have to say, it was easier for me to be in bed with COVID on Christmas Eve than what I normally do on Christmas Eve. <laughs> Sometimes it is harder to get well than to stay sick. Do you want to be made well? We're going to get back to that. But notice the man's response. It's interesting. He actually doesn't answer the question. Maybe there is something to that question because the man doesn't even directly answer the question. Instead, what he says is he gives some sort of excuse. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. I mean, Jesus, obviously, the only way I can get healed is if I get into this water. And my problem is, is I just don't have anyone to put me into that water. In fact, every time it's stirred up, Somebody pushes me aside and gets in ahead of me, which is just sad, isn't it? It's just tragic. 
And it's interesting, even in this text, you know, Jesus notices, and, and this guy, it's, it's not his fault that he can't get in the water. But Jesus is going to tell him in a moment that his healing is going to involve his responsibility. Because notice what he says next. Jesus, I guess I skipped a... That's not on the... I'll just uh, read it. So the the man says, "I, I can't get in ahead of me. And then Jesus says this. He looks at the man. He says, get up and take up your bed and walk. You know, I would have thought that, you know, if, if I would have maybe been in this situation, that I might, would have, I might have sat down next to this man after he told me such a sad, dark story. I might have entered in empathetically next to him and put my arm around him and tried to comfort him. But Jesus doesn't comfort him in this moment. Instead, Jesus commands him. Because in this moment, Jesus has not come to be his comforter. He has come to be his healer. And so he says, get up, rise up. In the original Greek, it's, uh, it's the same word used to describe resurrection. Wake up, rise up. As if to say, a little resurrection is happening right here in your midst. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. But look what happens next. You know, sometimes being made well is harder than staying sick because what happens next is life gets a little bit more complicated for this guy. Before, he hadn't had problems with the religious authorities. They actually had ignored him up to this point. The religious people had ignored the people in desperation who were in the worst straits. But now that he's healed, the religious people start paying attention and they start giving him trouble. And look what happens next. It says, now the day was Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed on the Sabbath. You know, I just imagine if uh, Joe Biden were a Pharisee, he might say, come on, man. You know, why do you got to heal on the Sabbath all the time, Jesus? Come on, man. You know, I was just thinking out there. I don't know. (laughs) But they're just like, come on, Jesus. Like, do we always have to heal on the Sabbath? Like, you got six days to heal people. And of course, you got to always do it on the Sabbath. And do you notice, he didn't just tell the man to get up. He told the man to take up his bed and carry his bed. And so now the man is carrying his bed on the Sabbath, which is a violation of the rules that the religious people had made about the Sabbath. And this was not the rule that came in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say anywhere you cannot carry your mat on the Sabbath if you've been healed. This is a rule that the Pharisees had made about the Sabbath. And so they're like, what gives? How dare you break our Sabbath laws?
And isn't it interesting that in our text, the leaders are more concerned about the Sabbath law being broken than they are amazed about the healing power of God that is staring at them in the face. Now, this isn't the main point of the sermon, but it's important to point out, this is often what happens with religious people. And let us who are religious, Bible-believing people, like the Pharisees were religious, Bible-believing people, let us note this. This is what happens when religious people forget or ignore the why behind the what. Or maybe to be more specific or to bother you a little bit more, if I can do that. This is what happens when defending a theological system or a political agenda or ideology. This is what happens when party loyalty takes precedent over the very people they are supposed to serve. This is what happens when any of this becomes more important than the people they were designed to serve in the first place. Now, it's difficult to see this in ourselves because I think all of you would agree that, you know, our political ideology, our party platforms, our theological systems shouldn't take precedence over loving people, right? And and you might even be thinking like, gosh, I wish my mother-in-law were here to hear this. She really needs to hear this. She's always getting on about things. She just doesn't care enough about people, you know? But listen, like, maybe, maybe this isn't something you need to listen to on behalf of somebody else. Maybe this is a point that all of us just need to pay attention to. We all need to look in the mirror and just be very, very careful. And we need to be honest because sometimes when what is best for people, when loving people becomes what's most important to you, then you are at odds with God. Because in Scripture, what has John just said? He said, look, John, in commenting on the whole reason why Jesus came back in John 3, he said, look, here it is. For God so loved the world. God loves people. God loves all kinds of people. God loves liberal people and God loves progressive people. God loves people who have grown up in nice, uppity homes, and God loves people who who have had a rough time and who are addicted and who are enslaved. God loves gay people, and God loves straight people, and God loves black people, and God loves white people, and God loves Russian people, and God loves Ukrainian people. God loves people. And when our own political ideology or our party platform becomes more important to us than loving people, then something has just gone very wrong. And it goes wrong a lot in the church. It's going wrong a lot right now in America. And may it not be said that we get off on this point. Well, let's get back into the story. says this, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. You know, they said, who was it that healed you? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. He like healed me and then he left, you know. And uh, now the man did not know who it was that healed him for Jesus had withdrawn 
as there was a crowd in the place, and afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. <laughs> like, what was going on in that guy's life? You know, something was though, right? And notice what happens next. The man went away and he told on Jesus, as it were. He told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him and things go wrong now for Jesus. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. I have a commentary by a New Testament scholar named F. Dale Bruner. And he, he, he labels this healing the half healing of the hard to like half dead man. Now, I don't know if that's entirely fair. I don't know if he's that hard to like. This guy's had a law, just a rough life, right? I mean, who can judge a guy who's just been in this state for so long? And yet there is something a little bit like, what's going on with this guy? You know, why does Jesus ask this question? Do you want to be made well? Why does he seem to say, well, I've got this other thing happening to me. And then when he finally gets healed, it seems like he tries to scapegoat and put Jesus, like get your attention off me, religious people, and put it on Jesus. We don't really know what's going on, but there the story ends. And the question I want to ask is, what is this story intended to do in our lives? It's important to note Again, that in the Gospel of John, the miracles he records are not just miracles. You know, I remember back in the day uh, when my kids were little, I was listening to a song and it said something about a miracle. And then my daughter Mia, who was like three or four, said, Daddy, what's a miracle? And then Audrey, who was like five or six, says, I know what a miracle is. That's easy. It's when God does something fancy. Listen, in the New Testament, miracles are not simply God just doing something fancy. In the Gospel of John, the miracles are signs. In other words, they're intended to point beyond themselves to something bigger. And what John is doing is John says, look, you cannot contain everything that Jesus did on earth, even if you had all of the books in the world to contain it. You could not contain all of the majestic work of this rabbi from Galilee. But he says, I have carefully selected, I have curated, I have edited out seven of these signs in order that you might learn something. And what is this story intended to point us to? Well, I think it's intended first at least to point us to this, that Jesus has come into this world to bring to birth right in the midst of all of the suffering and the misery of humanity a new house, a new kingdom, a house of mercy, a house of loving kindness. The healing, restorative power of God has broken into this world in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even as Jesus says, rise up to this man, share in this resurrection power, this story is intended to point us to the reality that in Jesus, the long-awaited kingdom of God has broken into the world and healing and grace is available. You're all invited into the House of Chesed, the house of loving kindness and mercy.
But I think this story is doing something else to us that I think is a little bit more personal. I think this story is intended to help us think through our relationship, the relationship of our personal lives, our broken lives, to this new healing power of God that's broken into this world. And I think how Jesus is seeking to get us to think about the relationship between our lives and this healing kingdom is by asking us this question, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? Again, not everyone does. And not everybody does because getting well sometimes means change. You know, it was uh, Flannery O'Connor who said, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and change is painful. Do you want to be made well? It's going to require some change in your life, and that's hard. You know, I'm not broken like this man in this story, and I have none of his problems. And maybe none of us is exactly like this man, right? But none of us are whole. We may not be physically crippled, and we are not stuck by a pool, but a lot of us are stuck and crippled by a lot of other stuff in our lives. You are crippled by your anger or by your anxiety or by your fears and your worries. And it is out of control, it's off the charts, and it's making you difficult to be with. Or you're, you're, you're stuck in your anger or you're stuck in your addiction to the pills or to alcohol. You're stuck in those dysfunctional relational patterns. You don't know why, but you got to keep going back to those abusive, toxic relationships because maybe it's all you know. All of us carry some brokenness. All of us knows what it means to be crippled and stuck in some way or another, don't you, in your life? And so Jesus puts this question to us, do you want to be made well. Because again, not everyone does. Listen, you know, some of us, you know, you've been complaining and complaining and complaining about the, the habits that you're stuck in, but you're not taking any steps to get you out of that place. Because sometimes getting well is harder than remaining sick. Sometimes getting help calls for more humility than staying sick. So let me just ask you whether it's a physical ailment or a habit that you go, yeah, 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 I know I've got to deal with that. And we've all got stuff like that, right? Do you want to be made well? This is a question. Maybe you've got to go home and look in the mirror and just ask that question. Do you want to be made well? And maybe consider the possibility that the reason why you're not getting well and why you're staying sick and why you're being a serial dater or why you're still addicted or enslaved or, or you're in this you know, dysfunctional marriage and you're not seeking restoration and you're staying in that habit that's holding on to you, the bitterness, the unforgiveness, is that just staying in that place is easier than getting made well. Because look, there's a cost to getting well, isn't there? 
What's it gonna cost you? You have to be honest. And sometimes you gotta let go of things in your life that you actually like. You know, I was listening to a story this week from uh, a lady who was just kind of opening up and sharing her story of her problem with alcohol. And she told this story of, of like, you know, of getting to this place where she, she went out to her brother's wedding. She got so plastered that uh, she, she didn't remember anything. And she woke up in the hotel room, the hotel room where she was supposed to be with her five-year-old daughter who she brought to the party that night, the wedding party. And instead, she found herself awake next to a stranger she didn't know. And she didn't know where her daughter was. And she asked that question, did I, hit? I, I, I still didn't hit rock bottom. She said, I wanted to take baby steps when I needed to take the extreme course, and I just didn't want to let go of alcohol, not yet. She eventually did. But sometimes it's hard. you've got to let go. And sometimes you've got to be honest, and it's hard to face up to the truth. And listen, the, the question is not, is it your fault? A lot of stuff that you are experiencing right now, it's not your fault. I mean, if you, if sometimes if you're an addict, sometimes that's genetic stuff. There's stuff going on there that, that maybe like you bear some culpability, but it's not your, it's not necessarily your fault. Or you, you've been in hurtful, abusive relationships. It's all you know. It's not your fault. And listen, it may not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. Jesus may look at you and say, wake up, rise up. You got to step up. You got to start dealing with this. And here's the thing. If you have the capacity and the potential and the resources in the world you live in to be made well, as someone who is created in the image of God, it, you have a responsibility to God and to other people around you who love you to do what you can to be made well. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that any of us gets made well by our own power. What we're talking about here is the health of Bethsaida. And I'm not saying that you need to get made well in order for God to love you. No, you are loved just as you are. You know, there's this great song by uh, Maverick City Music Band, uh, called Jaira, and it says, uh, I'll never be more loved than I am right now. I wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I can do to let you down. It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. And listen, you will never be more loved than you are right now. God loves you exactly as you are. God loved this man with all of his, his crippling, you know, sin that went below the physical ailments. He was, God loves you as you are right now, but he loves you way too much to let you stay that way. And so he invites you, he invites me to step out like do you want to be made well? You say, well, how, how, how does that begin, you know? It doesn't, it, well, it doesn't begin with you. It began because 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into our world. And when God in Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us, 
He didn't simply come in and avoid the palace and go to a place of suffering. He left the eternal palace of glory and love and entered into our place of suffering and pain in this world. And when he came among us, he didn't just simply come and speak a word to bring healing to the sick and to those who suffer. He came in and entered into solidarity with the sick and the suffering. And he took upon himself our own pain and suffering, bearing it in his own body. His blood was shed and his body was broken so that you and I can be made whole. And the path into wholeness begins when you say, yes, I want to be made whole. And you open up your life and you surrender into the hands of Jesus. You say, Jesus, I'm done pretending. I'm done hiding. I'm done lying. I'm done, you know, putting on a facade to my neighbors and to my parents and to my spouse and to my siblings and to my friends and to the people at church. I'm ready to come clean and be, I surrender all of that. And those hands that open up and surrender are the very hands that enable you to reach out and receive the grace and mercy of God in this, the house of God's mercy. You know, we're going to close out our service by sharing together in the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to invite our band to come up. And I want to invite you to do something as we engage in this practice together you know, um, at a very physical, tactile level, you cannot share in the Lord's Supper if you keep your hands closed, can you? You've got to open it up and put that little thing in there, and then you've got to open the thing up and get those things out. and. And I just want to invite you today, if you want to be made well, to let it begin here at the Lord's table. Where you open up your heart and your life again, afresh, to a gracious encounter with the risen Jesus who's come into this world so that you can be made whole. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't the, the only step you need to take. You may need to take some other steps. You might need to come and talk with a pastor. You might need to confess to your spouse. You might need to get into some counseling. You might need to join Celebrate Recovery. You might need to get into something that, that's going to take you on a journey. But it begins here. This is the first step, opening up your heart and your life to Jesus and we can do that together afresh at the table. So join with me in prayer. And I'll invite you, as the band sings a song over us, to get the elements prepared and hold on to them. And then I'll come back up and I'll lead us in partaking together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we confess, God, that we are a community of people that are broken and in need of wholeness. Father, I want to be made well. I want you to break into my life and to break away my insecurities and my fears, my own pride and arrogance. 
my unbelief. Father, I need to be made well, and I know I'm not alone. And so as we now approach the table, we approach it with honest confession on those places in our life, God, where we need you to break in. So come meet us in this practice, we pray, and begin a fresh journey that leads to our own wholeness today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.